The scripture reading today is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 8 and 12 through 17. So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. God has done what was impossible for the law, since it was weak because of selfishness. God condemns sin in the body by sending his own son to deal with sin in the same body as humans, who are controlled by sin. He did this so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, the way we live is based on the spirit, not based on selfishness. People whose lives are based on selfishness think about selfish things. But people whose lives are based on the spirit think about things that are related to the spirit. The attitude that comes from selfishness leads to death. But the attitude that comes from the spirit leads to life and peace. So the attitude that comes from selfishness is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. People who are self-centered aren't able to please God. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the actions of the body, you will live. All who are led by God's Spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together in the midst of, um, of a damp day for those of us who are here in San Francisco um, to incline our hearts and our ears to what it is that you might have to say to us. We know that you do not disappoint, and so we ask that you would clear away all the things that clutter our hearts and minds, uh, preventing us from being fully present in this space, attentive to uh, your words and um, clouds our imaginations for what you would have to do within us and through us in this world. Speak through me, because of me, and in spite of me, um, so that your work and your word and your vision of wholeness of life for all may be made more real for each one of us in the ways that you invite us to participate in it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Earlier this week, I was listening to a podcast episode of the Ezra Klein Show um, featuring a conversation with the author, writer, philosopher, Chloe Cooper-Jones. 
She lives her life in a disabled body, and she shared at, um, in this podcast how at a very young age she developed techniques that enabled her to sort of divide her mind from her body in relation to physical pain. You go to these places in your mind, she describes hers as a windowless white room where she can slowly count to eight, which enables you to separate yourself from the anticipation of pain. Because, her doctor told her, the pain in the mind is often not the pain itself, but the anticipation of it. And so if you go to this place in your mind that is separate, it enables you to kind of dissociate from your reality. No one else can join you in that space, and so you can singularly concentrate on what you choose to focus on, rather than spending time and mental energy on anticipated anguish. <clears throat> For many people, the construction of a neutral room, as she calls it, might be associated with experiences of trauma and powerlessness. And in such cases, it is an involuntary protective response. But for Chloe, and she later actually learned long distance athletes, it is a conscious and strategic way to stay the course when things get tough. It has become a powerful coping mechanism that has helped her to feel like she has some agency over her circumstances and relief from the expectations of other people or their perceptions. And yet, as helpful as it has become for her, not only managing pain, but also creating a space where she can think and write, this neutral room um, can also end up being a space where she uh, has found that she can retreat from social pain or obligation or really kind of like the things that she doesn't want to engage in. The neutral room becomes kind of an escape hatch or has become kind of an escape hatch for situations that she should actually stay very present in to bear some vulnerability or maybe even responsibility. And while I was listening, I couldn't help but reflect on our passage for today. Now, today we read the Common English Bible translation, um, which says, God has done what is impossible for the law since it was weak because of selfishness. God condemned sin in the body by sending his own son to deal with sin in the same body as humans who are controlled by sin. He did this so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Now the way we live is based on the spirit, not, on based, not based on selfishness. People whose lives are based on selfishness think about selfish things, but people whose lives are based on the spirit think about things that are related to the spirit. The attitude that comes from selfishness leads to death, but the attitude that comes from the spirit leads to life and peace. So the attitude that comes from selfishness is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. People who are self-centered aren't able to please God. So that's the common English Bible. Folks are probably, though, more likely familiar with a different version of this translation than the one we read today. And I'll read it again, just for fun. Uh, God has done what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened with, by the flesh. God did so by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of flesh cannot please God. Do you hear, do you hear the difference? <laughs> this word, I underlined it in both translations. Uh, maybe, Jason, if you could show the, the first version, too, so folks can kind of see it again. This word that gets translated as flesh 
in the second translation here in the, uh, in the New International Version. Um, you can see that it gets translated in a, a few different ways comparatively in the first, right? And it's times like these when I'm really glad I was required to study Greek and Hebrew in seminary because this word get, that gets translated as flesh, sarkos, can actually be translated in a number of ways. Flesh, body, human nature, materiality, kindred, like kin. And this is a really important thing to be aware of, right? Because when you choose to focus only on one interpretation of the word, it can totally skew your understanding of what is being said. Especially if you're already existing in a theological tradition that is steeped in ableism, body shaming, misogyny, homophobia, and purity culture. If you pay attention, you'll notice, actually, that in the CEB, the Common English Bible, the word flesh doesn't even come up once, which is clearly a deliberate choice. The flesh is too easily, has become a shorthand for anything related to the ways that our bodies express desire, need, or pain. If only I could get rid of this body, I could finally be free to the, be the person that God wants me to be. We can't help thinking. But well, if that was true, why in the world, literally, would God take on this very same kind of existence? Was the whole person of Jesus just one elongated prank orchestrated by Johnny Knoxville? <laughs> if our flesh was so bad, then why clothe us in it to begin with? The translators of the Common English Bible use diverse expressions of sarkos to help us have a broader understanding of what Paul was really trying to get at when he was teaching his siblings of the faith in Rome. Being fully alive in the gift of God's grace is to live in ways that transcend the things that keep us self-absorbed, broken, and fearful. And Paul gets here, after building a case about human nature and all the ways that we are incredibly creative at avoiding and undermining God's intentions for wholeness of life for all. Throughout the first eight chapters of this letter to the Roman church, Paul has been talking, taking folks on a trip down what many evangelists um, throughout the years have come to call the Romans Road. It is a theologically systematic rundown of how we came to be, who we are, and where we are, and how all of that points to the ministry and person of Jesus. We were saboteurs of our relationship with God at the dawn of creation, but repaired and renewed that relationship through mutual promise made with Abraham, the patriarch of the faith. And his descendants, through his wife Sarai, a.k.a. the people of Israel, tried to order their collective life. They created a series of community rules and laws that were intended to protect their life together, especially those who are most vulnerable among them. But, spoiler alert... Those laws ended up getting manipulated in their application and were weaponized to maintain power for those who implemented the laws. And Jesus, Paul has been saying, Jesus has come to crack open those laws, to let the grace of God spill through and return them to their purpose. And this time, Jesus brought his crew. The Holy Spirit is here to help us come correct, to orient us away from all these well-worn trails of harm and self-sabotage and empower us so that we'll do the work in which God helps make which helps make God's love the highest law of the land. The Holy Spirit, Sophia in the Greek, which is why we say she when referring to her, is here to help us confront the things about ourselves and each other in the world we are living in that sever our connectedness. And this brings me back to the neutral room. Because while the neutral room can be a respite in times of distress or pain or overwhelm, it can easily become the place where we choose to live and just stay. Because it's a lot easier than having to confront or be confronted with all the things that are hard about life and living in relationships and, frankly, ourselves. It can also end up making us less visible 
We, make our, we engage in our own self-erasure to ourselves as well as others. Here's how Chloe Cooper-Jones describes it. I mean, I am a great example of someone who's gotten talking. You know, if you had known me at 20, you would never believe that I would be having this conversation with you because I acted as though disability was not a real thing. I never studied it. I never spoke about it, not even with my mother. I would never bring it up. I would sometimes be in incredible amounts of pain and never acknowledge it. If someone made fun of me or I had a a strange interaction, I'd pretend it didn't happen. I wouldn't analyze it to myself or with anyone else. I wanted to live in a world in which my body was not different from anybody else's. And that was always what I was aiming for, is to get outside of the experience of disability. Not only is that, of course, like really dishonest and inauthentic, but it also is a very complex act of self-erasure. And it wasn't good for me, and it wasn't good for a single other person. Mm -hmm. But this is such an obvious, not profound thing to say, and everyone sort of figures this out before me. But it's like when you actually start to think about yourself and your body and the complicated relationship between the internal and external self, when you start to embody that, when you allow in the complexity of that perception of your body with all the pain and vulnerability that comes along with it, then you start to speak from a more authentic place. And when you speak from a more authentic place, you often give other people the permission to also speak to you more authentically. And then suddenly you're capable of having real connection to another person whose life and circumstances are necessarily different from yours. So this thing I was after my whole life, which was a feeling of being real and connecting to people, I was in my own way, largely. I was always collaborating or complicit in the worst ideas of Mm. myself. So I had to learn how to talk about these things. And one of the best ways that I learned was through reading and really engaging in ideas from other disabled activists or theorists or people who had the ability to gift me with a language to sort of more clearly articulate my experiences. What the Holy Spirit is here to do, Paul says, is to get us outside of ourselves so that we can not only connect with God better and others better, but also connect with ourselves better. We can't connect with anyone if we're living in the neutral room or if we're creating tighter and more punishing rules and regulations that increase our illusions of power or safety or control. Instead of ensuring a sense of security, what all of our desperate self-preservation can end up doing is drawing tighter and tighter circles around who can belong and who is right and who is worthy, and we become increasingly fearful that we're the ones who will be left out. This kind of fleshy selfishness Paul says, is destroying us and leading us to death. It's not just the usual suspects, gluttony, greed, vanity, and all those fun things, right? Those are just the symptoms of a much deeper, deeper condition. We are stuck inside of ourselves. Our mental loops and internal narratives about who we are, how we're perceived, and what's possible keep us trapped and self-obsessed. So how do we begin to break free? 
the philosopher Iris Murdoch defines what we commonly call beauty as an occasion for unselfing. This happens often when we encounter experiences or spaces or artwork that kind of pulls us out of our current headspace, that allow us to transcend our experience rather than escaping to neutrality. Unselfing gives us an avenue for understanding the world in ways that we never could on our own. When was the last time you read a book or heard a song or took a hike that immersed you in a completely new way of understanding, where you were able to kind of take yourself out for a moment and just really be engaged? That is a different thing than escaping to the neutral room. Unselfing pulls us out of our internal narratives and shame spirals, our ruminations and our escape plans in order to see something beyond ourselves, to get out of our heads. And when we allow ourselves to do this, when we practice this as a spiritual discipline, we are, not a, we are able to not only see a bigger picture and narrative that we are a part of, we also find ourselves transported and transformed. This is why the power of testimony can be so transformative. This is why we're having Story Feast, actually, so that we can begin to hear from others and one another about what their experience of the same topic might be. Beauty and the opportunity to show up in spaces where the experiences and lenses that we have are not our own give us the capacity for transcendence, if only for a moment but a moment is all we need. It's all we need to catch a glimpse of God's glory within us, among us, and all around us. And this idea of beauty can feel a little suspicious, right, for those of us who come from maybe like a Calvinist reformed space. It's dangerous. After all, shallow forms of beauty, especially maybe the things we see in advertisements or through influencers of a certain brand, these kinds of beauty lead to greater selfishness, right, turning the focus back on ourselves and whether we measure up. On the other hand, the kind of beauty that leads to unselfing isn't always immediately beautiful. In fact, it might initially appear to be something that you'd want to avoid altogether. Chloe Cooper Jones calls this difficult beauty, the kind of beauty that takes work to understand. In the Christian tradition, we might call it discipleship. Discipleship is the path of following Jesus, a habit of being in the world that notices what no one else bothers to take time out for. The poor woman throwing her last two coins in the offering plate. The tax collector whose shrewdness has left him in the object of hostility. Even the stones on the side of the road that, if given the chance, will cry out their own praises to God. Difficult beauty can be found in each of these if we're willing to do the work, if we're willing to unself. And this unselfing, strangely, is what helps us be ourselves even more. Isn't that strange how that works sometimes? Because it gets us outside of ourselves long enough to see that as all of these were made to glorify God in their particular way, so were we. Our unselfing can help us understand that the glory of God, uh, understand that the glory of God to be made known through us, not only in spite of us, but precisely because of us. Paul is here to remind us today in no uncertain terms that while shame is a powerful mechanism in the world, and let's be honest, in the church, it is nowhere to be found in God's vocabulary. He says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not there's only a little bit of condemnation. Not there might be some condemnation later. 
No, there's absolutely no condemnation. There's as much condemnation as there was toilet paper in the shelves in March of 2020. It's all gone. <laughs> if you want it, you're going to have to ask someone else if they will spare a square. But God has got no square to spare for you, for me, or for anyone else who is willing to say yes. Yes to this new way of life made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what is holding you back? What is holding you back? Think about that. What are those spaces in your life when you retreat to the neutral room? When you cut yourself off from feeling or connecting because it's too hard, too painful, too vulnerable. God wants each of us to embody the deepest, deepest level of belonging. And that means we are no longer slaves to fear or anxiety or rejection or anything else that would set us against each other and against ourselves. We are not slaves to shame. No, instead we are set free for life and life abundant and for pride. Pride in the person God has created us to be. Pride in our ability to glorify God with all of who we are. Pride that is grounded not in self-valuation, but in God's affirmation. God has set you free from yourself. For yourself. Because it is only when you are your whole self that you can fully reflect the glory of God in this world. You were made to be free. Fully free. So then what do you need to do to drop those chains and live like it's true. Let us pray. God, we thank you that you invite us to be free. We're also afraid of it. We're afraid of what that means for us, what we have to give up, what we have to think about, what we have to face and confront. And so help us to remember, God, that there is absolutely no condemnation when we have said yes to you. And more than that, we have gift, a gift and access to the power and courage to do this through the power of the Holy Spirit among us. Help us to trust that, to believe that, and to live that so that we might glorify you in the ways that only we can. We pray this with trust and hope in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.